The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. I'm so excited to bring our guest to you today. He is considered the father of environmental justice, and that's a term that we hear much more routinely today than we did so many years ago um, when he first introduced the concept. And we're going to be talking to him about what his research shows uh, in terms of the burden, the environmental and health burden that America's poor, working class, and minority communities bear in terms of environmental health hazards and uh, some of the local, uh, locally unwanted land uses that often plague these neighborhoods. I'm happy to introduce to you today Dr. Robert Bullard. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. Uh, and nice to be with you. Well, before we talk about some of your studies and your research on this issue of environmental justice, I think it's really important for our listeners to understand the term itself. And so who better to help us define environmental justice than the father of environmental justice? So please, won't you tell us how it is that you define that term? Okay, well, environmental justice basically um, embraces the principle that all communities and all people are entitled to equal protection of our environmental laws, uh, regardless of race, class, uh, income, or geography. And it, um, it, uh, it really goes to the heart of to what extent uh, are our environmental laws uh, enforced uh, equally across the board so that no one segment of our society is overburdened. So, mm-hmm. it's, so environmental justice is, is actually an extension of civil rights and human rights. Now, what was your first inclination, Dr. Bullard, that there was a connection between environmental human health risks and race? Well, you know, I, I, it was something that I uh, accidentally uh, got involved in and got brought into more uh, way back in 1978. Uh, I was a young sociologist in Houston, and I was asked to collect uh, data for a lawsuit that my wife had filed uh, trying to stop this uh, sanitary landfill that was being placed in a predominantly black middle-class suburban community in Houston. And so I was asked to collect data for this lawsuit. And I, I had 10 graduate students, and we collected the data. And what we found is that in Houston, Texas, which uh, did not have zoning at the time and does not have zoning uh, even to this day, uh, we found that 100% of all the city-owned landfills, five out of five, were located in mostly black neighborhoods in Houston. Six out of the city-owned um, incinerators were located in mostly black neighborhoods, and three out of four of the privately-owned landfills in Houston uh, were located in uh, mostly black neighborhoods. And this trend uh, was started in the early 20s and continued up, in, up until 1978, 
uh, when that lawsuit was filed, Bean versus Southwest Waste Management Corporation, which was the first uh, lawsuit to challenge environmental racism and environmental discrimination using civil rights law. So what we found is that 82% of all the garbage being dumped in Houston from the 20s and up until 1978 uh, was being disposed in black neighborhoods, even though blacks only made up 25% of the population. So something mm. was going on there, and mm-hmm. it had a lot to do with racism. And what what kind of helped you branch out of Houston? I mean, clearly there were some indicators in that community that this was an issue. But um, at what point did you discover that this was happening elsewhere? Well, you know, as a sociologist, I, you know, curiosity got the best of me. Mm. And what I did is uh, I wanted to know, is this? Is this just a Houston phenomenon because Houston was so different? You know, it doesn't have zoning, and these are decisions that were made by individuals sitting on city council, and and all-white city council, I might say. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to know, is this something that's happening in other cities across the South? And so I I wrote a grant and got it funded, and I expanded the study to include Dallas. All of the lead smolters in Dallas, Texas, were located in black neighborhoods. I expanded to Louisiana and and found that along the Mississippi River where all these, you know, refineries and petrochemical plants and, and all kinds of, of um, industrial facilities uh, happened to be located uh, disproportionately where, where black people live. I went to mm-hmm. Alabama and West, I even went to West Virginia. And, and a lot of people don't even know that there are black people in West Virginia, but this company <laughs> found them and put this big petrochemical plant in the middle of the black community in the uh, in, uh, Institute, which is... Uh, a little town outside of Charleston. So that's how uh, Dumping in Dixie came about, the first book mm-hmm. on environmental justice. And so it, it became clear that, that Houston was, the Houston case study was not just uh, an isolated incident, that mm-hmm. there was a pattern that existed in the southern United States, uh, Dixie, uh, former slave states, that a direct correlation between exploitation of land and exploitation of people. The resistance against, you know, for uh, equal protection in terms of civil rights that also extended to uh, lack of equal protection when it comes to environmental uh, quality and the location of locally unwanted land uses of Lulu's. Mm-hmm. I want to back up for just a second to make sure that our listeners understand the term zoning, because mm-hmm. if you're not familiar with the way that land use is, uh, you know, d- decisions are made in terms of how land will be used, some of our listeners may be unfamiliar with that term. Could you help us understand uh, what significance it has that Houston does not have zoning? Well, well zoning is, uh, is a tool that's used by planners and governmental entities to regulate uh, land use. And the whole idea is everything in its place and a place for everything, the highest and best use of the land. And the, and the, the, the highest use is resi- single-family residential. And then you start going down to uh, apartments and commercial, light industrial and industrial. So the idea is that you would not think that a rational uh, planning decision would be made to place uh, an incinerator uh, uh, that burns garbage next to a school uh, or a landfill next to a school, but in Houston, that's what exactly happened. The school that was subject, the landfill that was subject of the lawsuit, was located 1,300 feet from a school, and there are at least a dozen schools within a within a two mile radius of this facility. And so, zoning is very um, uh, personal and it's very local, and so the local decisions that are oftentimes oftentimes dictate where uh, apartments go where uh, commercial facilities like, uh, like a shopping center, 
uh, or industrial facility. These things are oftentimes uh, made in offices where you have maps and charts uh, and uh, information that say, well, this is not a good place to put this, and, and this area is in a floodplain, and this area you know, is, 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 uh, is, is not a good area because of high concentrated, uh, concentration of population. Uh, so so these, are rash, these are supposed to be rational, objective decisions based on some type of criteria. But when you mm-hmm. add race and class, uh, things really get out of whack because mm-hmm. the path of least resistance oftentimes means that poor people and people who don't have a lot of resources oftentimes get dumped on and get things that other people don't want and have the power and resources to fight with lawyers and, and experts. Mm-hmm. Talk to us just a little bit more about these LULUs, locally unwanted land uses. You've mentioned uh, incinerators and landfills. Give us a few more examples of these facilities and help us understand the damage that they cause neighborhoods that are local uh, located nearby. Help us understand a little bit more about that. Okay, if you can just picture, if, if the listeners can just picture their community or their city or their metropolitan region, uh, there are all kinds of, of uses, land uses. You have houses and you have shopping uh, you have um, you, you have amenities like hospitals and parks, green space, and then you have the what's called the lulus, often things people unwanted land uses. And lulus oftentimes take take the shape of of um, of residential disamenities, things that detract from property values and quality of life, and oftentimes are either polluting or eyesores, etc. They could be refineries. It could be a petrochemical plant. It could be an incinerator. Uh, in some cases, it could be uh, something that, that uh, people don't want, that, that they consider would lower their property values and their quality of life, which could be an industrial uh, facility that, uh, that provides jobs, of course, but, but may not be considered uh, compatible use with a residential. And this mm-hmm. is where you get into this whole idea of to what extent should, should you have uh, these uh, dangerous facilities that oftentimes have accidents, they have explosions, they have emissions, the routine emissions uh, near a highly populated area. And, and again, there are the risks associated with facilities just don't stop at the fence line. Uh, you have, uh, a lot of times you have facilities that require uh, transport of chemicals. And it means that you have trucks coming in that are mostly diesel trucks that that bring in uh, the chemicals or take them out, or and also there are oftentimes diesel trucks that that leave a lot of pollution. In some cases, the the chemicals or the the, the hazards come in on rail, and so you know you talk about the potential for accidents, derailments, explosions, and so when you talk about the risk associated with Lulu's, uh, it's not just aesthetics, but it's also potential health risk as well as uh, risk to uh, to property, um, uh, property uh, damage, as well as uh, other kinds of, 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 I guess, emotional risk with not knowing what's being produced on site mm-hmm. and not knowing uh, what the health effects would be, uh, not just now, but, you know, later on, 20 years from now, or the impact on, on their children if, uh, if, they, if, if, if individuals have children. Let me ask you this, Dr. Bullard. Are these types of facilities necessary? I mean, do we have to have them in the first place? Do they have to go somewhere? Yeah, in many cases, uh, many of these facilities are, are facilities that, 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 uh, that make up uh, part of our, our economic uh, system and part of our, um, I guess, uh, economic well-being. 
uh, as far as the economy. In some cases, uh, the amount of pollution and the amount of emissions and the way that certain things are produced, we could, we could definitely uh, change the production process so that we don't have we – can, we can minimize the, the health risk and minimize the toxic burden that they, uh, that they have on communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, I've worked on a number of cases and examples where, it, where some of these facilities definitely were not needed. And, mm-hmm. uh, and the, the need justification – was one of the reasons for, for uh, the turning down of the commit permit or or the the uh, or, or basically the defeating of, of of those things being being uh, being built. For example, I worked on a case in Louisiana, Northwest Louisiana. That uh, company was trying to build a the first privately owned uranium enrichment plant, and there was no justification. Uh, there was no need. Uh, it had never been done before. It was experimental, uh, and the analysis that was done. Uh, in terms of the environmental impact, the health impact uh, on the community, uh, it was defa- it was really faulty, uh, and so we were able to defeat that facility because there was no need. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, th- in some cases, uh, it's about trying to get uh, um, uh, some type of development or facility in place uh, without necessarily having really a justification or a need. Well, and you also studied, and, and I read Dumping in Dixie years ago and reread it before our interview. It had a tremendous impact on me. And you also studied a community where uh, they were actually building one of the largest hazardous waste sites in the country. And all of this waste, I mean, a huge amount of the nation's hazardous waste was going into one little community. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how in the world do decisions like that, uh, how are they justified? Well, you know, I, uh, when I was working on Dumping and Dixie and, and outlining that case study, this is a case in Alabama, in, uh, in Sumter County, in the Alabama Black Belt. This is a predominantly uh, black county. It was 75% uh, African-American when, uh, when that facility was, was uh, decided to be placed in that county. 75% black county, but no county commissioners uh, were black uh, serving on the county commissioner. I mean, like you, you say, well, how can that be? Well, again... It was a case in Alabama in, in the late 70s where African Americans were, it was difficult to vote. Uh, it was difficult to get elected to a uh, county commissioner. And so these decisions that were made by, by white men to decide to put this facility in the middle of this county and to attract waste. And in that county, even to this day, the major employer in that county and the major industry in that county is that facility. And so mm-hmm. when you talk about who makes the decisions, and how decisions oftentimes are not democratic. These are people don't generally vote for getting a landfill or an incinerator or some type of of uh, facility that that uh, create um, uh, problems for their for their area. And in many cases, uh, the injustice uh, comes when people are promised jobs and the jobs don't come for the residents that host the community, uh, host the facility, but the jobs go to the people who drive in, spend eight hours and drive out. Uh, mm-hmm. And they leave their, you know, they leave their uh, pollution there uh, and, uh, and people are stuck with poverty and pollution and sometimes they're lo- left with getting sick. And that's the, I guess that's the irony of this whole environmental justice, economic justice argument is that the communities that oftentimes are burdened with these facilities, the, the host communities or the fence line communities, uh, they don't even get the jobs. Um, mm-hmm. they, they get fewer jobs and they get more pollution. 
uh, they could actually walk to work. They could actually walk around the fence and, and, and to the jobs. But, but again, the jobs uh, are not for them. The, 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 the externalities or the risks or the burdens are localized, whereas the benefits uh, are more dispersed uh, in terms of how the taxes that uh, these companies pay, they don't mm-hmm. just go to the community. They go to the entire county, and they are spread, whereas if you live next door, uh, you get the pollution. Where if you live 15, 20 miles away, you get the jobs and, and, the, uh, and the, uh, the income and the tax base uh, that's spread out. And clearly, that's unfair. Uh, we've got to take a quick commercial break, very, very quick, and then we'll be right back with more of our discussion on environmental justice with Dr. Buller. Don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. All round the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, our guest today is Dr. Robert Bullard, often called the father of environmental justice. He was also, um, he was named in 2007, CNN named him a person you should know. In 2008, Newsweek named him one of the 13 environmental leaders of the century. And in 2013, he was honored with the Sierra Club's John Muir Award and was actually the first African-American to win that award. And he's with us today. We're talking about environmental justice. Dr. Bullard, in your first book, Dumping in Dixie, 
you studied primarily African-American communities in Alabama, Texas, Louisiana, and West Virginia. And there were many things, of course, that struck me about your research. But one of the things that really got me was the notion that outside environmental groups were not particularly helpful. And I'd like for you to talk with us about what your studies have shown about how African-American communities have achieved the greatest success in mitigating or eliminating environmental health hazards. What are some of those key strategies that you've seen work best for those communities? Well, you know, when I was writing up Dumping in Dixie uh, and looking at uh, the southern United States and African Americans, what I discovered, this was way back in uh, ni- from 1978 up until 1989, and Dumping in Dixie came out in 1990, I-, I discovered that there were not a lot of environmental groups that really understood what environmental justice was all about. And a lot of the groups saw um, saw the the issues that we were dealing with as social issues, and 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 so very difficult issues uh, dealing with race. And in our society, when when we talk about race, it becomes uh, almost like a shutdown issue for a lot of the 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 groups uh, and um, even progressive groups. And so what we had to do is to start to um, really talk about the right to breathe clean air as a basic uh, human right, the right to drink clean water and the right to have food that was safe and, and the right to have our children go outside and play on the playgrounds without having to be uh, concerned about an explosion from the nearby uh, refinery or chemical plant or whatever. And I think as we started to redefine environmentalism uh, in our movement and, to, and as African-Americans and and Latinos and Native Americans and Asians and Pacific Islanders started to come together. And I think the really big moment where we were able to really redefine uh, and really brand our movement was at the first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit. That was 1991. That was one year after Dumping and Dixie came out. And we were able to uh, really uh, say that, that people most uh, impacted by environmental problems must uh, speak for themselves and must be in a position to do for themselves. And so it was almost, you know, uh, uh, an empowerment moment and an empowerment uh, movement to say that the communities that are most affected really should be in the room and should be at the table to speak for themselves to say these are the kinds of strategies and solutions that we want to put in place to end this toxic madness. And, to, mm-hmm. and that all communities have a right to equal protection. Our environmental justice leaders and grassroots leaders were not talking about spreading the poison equally, you know, uh, to white communities. We were talking about eliminating these risks and reducing these risks uh, to all communities so that no one single segment of our society would bear the burden of these environmental uh, and health risks. And we had a lot of convincing to do among our progressive conservation and environmental groups and we also had an equal amount of convincing and conjoling and arm twisting among our civil rights groups. And so, so it took, in some cases, almost 20 years, two decades, to get the environmental community and the civil rights community to converge. And in that convergence, it strengthened and built uh, a much, uh, I guess, diverse and, and, and consolidated environmental justice movement. And, mm-hmm. and the movement is basically where environmentalism and civil rights and human rights converge. Well, what are some of the reasons that the civil rights uh, leaders and organizations might 
have not fought against facilities that pollute in their neighborhoods? I mean, what are what was the reluctance there? Well, I think there was, uh, and I and I dealt with this in a in a series of books that came after Dumping and Dixie, and and looking at it, how the evolution of our movement and the maturation of our movement occurred. I think there is there is reluctance on many of the uh, white environmental groups to deal with uh, environmental justice because. In many cases, they did not have the experience, they did not have the expertise, and they were not equipped to deal with with race and mm-hmm. racism. And so since most of the uh, environmental um, uh, contaminants and environmental uh, degradation and the facilities that we were, we were fighting were not in the suburbs, they were not in white communities, and so this is new territory, this is new ground. On the other hand, New ground for for uh, for many of the environmental groups. And I don't want to you know generalize the environmental groups as monolithic because they're not. There are a n- mm-hmm. number of groups that came aboard on environmental justice early uh, than others. In in terms of the civil rights community, I think the dealing with environmentalism was something uh, of suspicion, uh, and that some some of our environment uh, civil rights groups saw uh, saw the saw the environmental movement. Uh, maybe taken away from uh, the basic civil rights agenda. And so mm-hmm. there was some conflict there. Even though Dr. King went to Memphis, Tennessee in 1968 on an environmental justice issue involving garbage and garbage workers, black, black workers. So, so you had some, some hesitancy on both sides about the issue and some, some suspicions on both sides about uh, this, the issue. Uh, and people say, well, we don't know. I mean, we... we we don't know anybody in our community, black folks speaking and 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 and, and Latino speaking, that's been uh, to Alaska and seen polar bears. I mean, there are no <laughs> polar bears in the ghetto and the barrio. And so, I think there the it may sound simplistic, but even not having knowledge about each other's movement was a major barrier to bringing uh, the various uh, parties together. And I think in 1991, when we had the summit. Uh, people call a summit, and we invited uh, the, a number of the environmental groups there. And we had a dialogue. Uh, it was kind of, you know, kind of rough at first, uh, but it was co- it, it was civil, cordial, uh, and I think from then on we started to say uh, uh, we need to work together. Uh, we don't, we're not talking about uh, creating um, and replicating uh, uh, little brown Sierra clubs or little black uh, Audubon societies. We're talking about creating our own organizations, our own. Uh, uh, on uh, uh, NGOs so that we can work on these issues in our community. And I think from then, I think there became much more understanding of these issues and uh, and to get these issues uh, that, in many cases, environmental justice issues that were grounded in grassroots uh, community-based organizations and to get these organizations uh, uh, to, to really mobilize and, and to make change and 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 we did over these many years in in 1994. You know, it actually reached the White House, and President yep. Clinton uh, signed the executive order on environmental justice in 1994. And so it took a lot of the work, and it took time. It took time and education. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, even back when that was beginning, um, you, you mentioned in your book Dumping in Dixie, and, and I think a lot of people have seen this with their own eyes, that environmental degradation often does take a very heavy toll on inner city neighborhoods. Though your book, that particular book, studied a variety of neighborhoods, mm-hmm, suburban mm-hmm. and rural, mm-hmm. we've all seen environmental degradation that's gone on in inner city neighborhoods. But since then, you know, we're starting to see this huge trend that's kind of the reverse of the normal human migration from the inner cities to the suburbs to rural areas people we've we're now seeing a global trend of urbanization what mm-hmm. impact do you think that trend will have on the environmental uh, quality for inner city neighborhoods well you know if we look at the the issue of of um, uh, of watersheds and airsheds and we look at not just you know the inner city we look at the city uh, the suburbs, the rural areas, the metropolitan regions, and, and what that encompasses, rural areas, we're all connected. And if we look at, uh, the, for example, if we look at bad air, you know, non-attainment areas, right. uh, if you look at uh, non-attainment for metropolitan areas, you have poor people, rich people. You have, you know, urban, uh, suburban, exurbia. You have central city. You're, there's no black air, Hispanic air, white air. There's air. <laughs> That's and right. if the, if we got we got too many cars that's polluting and and facilities that's polluting, if we don't do something about reducing the emissions uh, when it comes to um, the dirty air, we we're in trouble as a metropolitan region. And we and in, in, in terms of the United States, we are a metropolitan country. And and when we talk about the the connection between urban, suburban, and rural. You can see this in terms of our air quality. Our, uh, the uh, American Lung Association just came out with a new study that a half of, of all Americans right now live in places where the air is bad. And mm. bad air, bad air uh, is making a lot of people sick, elevated asthma rates and respiratory illnesses. And when you talk about the breakdown of uh, demographics of who's most likely to live in cities uh, in metropolitan uh, regions that's, that's, uh, that's out of compliance, what's called non-attainment, uh, you find that uh, poor people and people of color are more likely to live in those cities where live in the dirtiest cities, to put mm-hmm. it plainly. And so there are implications for that. We're talking about a high percentage of people who have uh, of asthma and respiratory illnesses, a high percentage of people who are uninsured, who don't have health insurance, who... who uh, who who uh only way that they can get to uh healthcare is uh is uh emergency room and mm-hmm. with this whole idea of national health insurance or obamacare i mean the states that have the highest concentrations of african americans and latinos for example those southern and southwestern states these are the same states that are fighting uh, uh obamacare they you have the highest uninsured the highest concentration of poor people the highest concentration of people of color Yet and still, you don't want to, you know, move to to get people insurance so that we can, you know, uh, have preventive uh, health care. These right. things are all related, and I think the sooner people start making those con- connections, and with maps, uh, we can map, you know, the poverty belt, the black belt, the Hispanic belt, the uninsured belt, you know, the 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 disease belt. We can map all those things, and it becomes very clear that these uh, these belts are not random. 
Well, do you think that the Affordable Care Act, I mean, if we can finally get to the point where, you know, we, we have health care for, for all, um, do you think that that will help communities come together on issues of environmental justice, even if it's not for a social justice reason, if it's not, you know, for being treating people with dignity, all people, mm-hmm. um, if it's just for a societal cost avoidance reason? I mean, what what do you think the impact of universal health care would be on these types of issues? Well, I think it would be tremendous having having universal health care. Having preventive care, having um, uh, having the, the 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 coverage that you can uh, anticipate, you can prepare for, you can you know prevent. You know the preventive care uh, it makes economic sense all over the world. You know you know you're talking mm-hmm. about uh, preventing illnesses uh, before they occur, as opposed to people who don't have insurance. They're not going to the hospital. They're not getting checkups, and when they do go to the emergency room, you're talking astronomical costs, and those are societal costs. Even mm-hmm. So when we talk about the benefits, it makes all the sense in the world if we talk about pollution prevention, you know, ratcheting down the amount of emissions that's coming out of these smokestacks, uh, using technologies and using retrofitting uh, and, and using uh, less harmful kinds of production um, processes and, and not just using, you know, the, the, these old chemical processes that, that's creating lots of problems. Moving away from fossil fuels, moving uh, toward cleaner energy, you know, renewables. I mean, these things make a lot of sense. And in terms of if you crank out the numbers, the numbers go with prevention, uh, health mm-hmm. prevention and pollution prevention. But oftentimes our decisions are, are not always made based on objective, rational decisions. Oftentimes they are made in terms of political expediency and, and oftentimes made in a way that uh, because of who has the, the, the biggest and the deepest pockets when it comes to lobbying, uh, that decisions get, get uh, I guess, get um, biased and slanted toward the irrational. Well, that might be a, a generous and diplomatic way of putting it. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of things that um, put pressure on companies to do the right thing. Sometimes it's laws and regulations. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, people protesting and what have you. But there's a new form of pressure being put on companies um, that I'm kind of interested to hear your perspective on. You know, there's um, a movement for companies to... Uh, report on their environmental, social, and governance protocols, ESG. Um, the Dow Jones and the NASDAQ each have a sustainability index, and some of the country's most respected accounting firms like Ernst & Young are in the process of training chief financial officers to report on these metrics. You know, if, if we're not able to get the environment, environmental regulations that would adequately address environmental justice in, in a quick amount of time, do you think that these new ESG reporting trends will in any way help alleviate the industrial pollution in minority neighborhoods? Well, I think that any metric and any reporting that's made public and we start uh, having uh, standards and the extent to which they get uh, codified and adopted and and seen as something that you can measure uh, a company by uh, and, and start rating them. And in terms of consumers, we can say, well, we can use our buying power to punish those who have low ratings and reward those who have high with, what, with our buying power, with our purchasing power. And that's the only way that those kinds of standards will work. 
um, as opposed to something that may be considered greenwashing or just a, an attempt to give the appearance that that a, a company is sustainable or whatever. I think consumers have a lot of power. Uh, they're not, uh, they not organized. We're not organized in a way uh, that, that I think could make uh, something like, uh, like ESG uh, really helpful, beneficial, and particularly beneficial for those communities that uh, historically have borne the burden of, of uh, many of these companies uh, doing the wrong thing and not, not doing what uh, would be really considered uh, sustainable uh, and in the, benefit, in the best benefit of, of a livable uh, and healthy community uh, where, these, uh, where these companies operate. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a question about um, something that I'm very involved in. My nonprofit organization, the Go Green Initiative, is a national nonprofit that helps schools address their environmental impact. And I'm wondering what you think the role of environmental education, particularly in our K through 12 schools, could play in empowering students of all races and mm-hmm. economic status to be active and the kind of civic engagement that's necessary to address environmental justice issues. Well, you know, education, I'm an educator by heart. I'm a teacher. Uh, even though I write books and I, I do research and, and, and write articles, that kind of thing. I, at heart, I'm a teacher. And I think education uh, at every level is the key. But the most important part is that K-12, through 12. getting our young people involved early and, and have them involved uh, on all kinds of projects. And I think when you get to the young people, and young people get it. I mean, they're not, they're not, uh, they're not um, really intimidated by technology. They are able to use the technology today, and I think that they can, if given the right uh, uh, environment and the right atmosphere, I think our schools, no matter where they are, can set the tone for what kinds of changes uh, that are needed uh, for the future. And, and when we talk about, you know, uh, less than three decades from now, this country will be majority people of color. And so mm-hmm. when we talk about our elementary schools right now, we're talking about uh, kids that are going through the system that by the time they're in their you know, mid-20s, um, th- this country will have changed uh, dramatically. So I think we need to start that transition in terms of our education for a majority population that looks a lot different than, 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 than the population today. And I think every social movement, successful social movement in this country, whether it was peace and justice, anti-war, civil rights, women movement, et cetera, including environmental movement, have always had a strong youth and student movement. And so mm-hmm. I think what better place to start than in our schools? Mm-hmm. Now, this next question, I'm sure you are asked quite a bit, but I'd still like to ask it, and I'd love for my listeners to hear your thoughts on this. I mean, I realize that having an African-American president and attorney general will not solve all racial inequality overnight, but what impact has this administration had on environmental justice issues? Well, well I think the, the, the fact that the administration coming in uh, and and – and really appointing uh, President Obama, appointing uh, Lisa Jackson to the e- to the uh, head of the EPA, and Eric Holder as the uh, Attorney General. Uh, this is not symbolism. Th- these are very powerful positions. And I think at the EPA, for example, Lisa Jackson was able to reinvigor this whole idea of environmental justice. She made it one of her seven priority areas, uh, and and really started to get um, environmental justice back into 
I guess, back on the radar and getting it back into a lot of the departments and the the interagency working group, for example, was able to pull pull back together. You know, this is about 15 federal agencies, uh, and people have, need to understand that environmental justice is not just an EPA thing. I mean, it works across the Department of Transportation, Homeland Security. We, you know, you talk about energy, agriculture, et cetera. And so getting it back on the radar and, and, and reinvigorating and reengaging communities that were on the front line and the fence line with a lot of these environmental problems, I think that was, that was a shot in the arm that a lot of communities needed after somehow being dormant for, for eight years under the, under the, uh, the Bush administration, uh, uh, George W., but but mm-hmm. people should also realize that environmental justice really uh, took off uh, on the the first Bush administration, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, President uh, Bush uh, actually uh, his uh, his uh, EPA administrator William Riley actually uh, was able to get environmental justice into uh, the EPA. He set up an office of environmental justice. They produced the environmental justice report, uh, environmental equity, reducing risk for all communities. And so. I, Your your listeners should understand that environmental justice is not a Democratic issue. It's not a Republican issue. When we talk about breathing air and drinking clean water and making sure that our food is safe and our playgrounds are safe, uh, I don't think you have to be a Republican or a Democrat or independent to want that for your children. And and I think so. so, But again, oftentimes it gets compartmentalized, and and we say we have to work to make sure that uh, these issues cut across party and cut across class and cut, and cut, cut across race. Absolutely. Now, there's a new term coming into fashion, climate justice. And mm-hmm. I'd like for you to talk to us about the intersection of environmental justice and climate justice. Um, what kinds of things should we be doing in order to work on both simultaneously? We need to walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> and uh, well, where should we be looking for the necessary funding for the things that we're going to need to do in order to, to address both issues? Yes. Well, you know, you know, it's been my my uh, contention all along that that climate change is probably the number one environmental justice issue of the 21st century. Uh, the communities that that contribute the least uh, here in the U.S. as well as around the world uh, will be impacted first, worst, and and longest by climate change and global warming. And so it is an an issue of equity. It is an issue of justice and fairness. And so I think what we have to do is is we have to really see see climate change and and the justice component as uh, as central to addressing uh, the issue. The issue of climate change, it's more than uh, greenhouse gas emissions and, and, uh, and CO2. If we talk about uh, the major contributors to uh, climate change, we're talking about electricity generation and, mm-hmm. and big pollution from coal. It's not just CO2 from the plants, but it's also uh, the other coal pollutants that come from these power plants that's, that's harming a lot of people. And where these power plants are located, disproportionately near poor people and people of color. Transportation mm-hmm. uh, is another big uh, 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 contributor to uh, greenhouse gases. And, and so when we talk about uh, green, uh, uh, this whole issue of low-hanging fruit, if we can get under control our, our, our electricity generation uh, and our transportation, that's about 75% of, of greenhouse gases right there. And so if mm-hmm. we talk about getting uh, that 75%, that low-hanging fruit, getting more um, renewables online, reducing the number of, 
of coal plants and going to cleaner automobiles and cleaner transport and and more uh, efficient kinds of use of of uh, energy. I think we can we can deal you know go a long way in, in addressing that. And so, getting this whole climate justice piece right is not an add-on. The central piece should be the justice piece because right. of the fact that we're talking about uh, globally how these things uh, work out and the impacts that, that communities around the world, uh, what they're feeling. And, and a lot of times it's the poorest of the poor that's being impacted right now. You're so right. And I think that, you know, one of the things that we have to keep reminding folks is when we're talking about both environmental justice and climate justice, it's not about CO2 emissions. I mean, that's the the cause. But what we're really talking about is human suffering, yes. the human suffering that's caused by this and 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 protecting the dignity of, of all people. We've got to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we have more with Dr. Robert Bullard. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We're on with Dr. Robert Bullard today, and we're talking about environmental justice. And just before the break, we were talking about the human component of, of environmental justice and climate justice and reminding ourselves that, uh, you know, this is an issue about the dignity and the health and well-being of our fellow human beings. Um, this is not just about um, polar bears and spotted owls. Um, you know, lately, Dr. Bullard, there's been a lot of attention to the new pope, and a lot of that is because of some of his statements about our society's obligations to the poor and the most vulnerable in our society. Do you see a role for religious organizations in the pursuit of environmental justice? And if it happens to come from multicultural religions like the Catholic Church and not just from predominantly African-American pulpits, do you think it will be helpful to and trusted by people of color? 
Well, you know, Jill, that's a very good question, and and, uh, I often get asked that question in terms of what's the role of religion and the extent to which the church um, um, and organized religion, uh, what role should they play? You know, it's it's not by accident that uh, that the United Church of Christ, for example, uh, with Reverend Ben Chavis uh, and the Commission for Racial Justice, actually led you know those protests in North Carolina, uh, fighting that landfill, that PCB landfill, mm-hmm. and it, and the United Church of Christ was the was the organization that that helped organize. Uh, and was a central um, organization that that, that uh, pulled the environmental justice community together for the first People of Color Summit. So the church um, has played a major role in in defining, you know, stewardship and seeing uh, what 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 should happen when it comes to justice questions and uh, the most vulnerable in us in our society, poor people. And I think that extends also globally. Uh, with the Catholic Church and with the new Pope, and looking at looking at um, the world and seeing the the, the people that's suffering the most uh, when it comes to poverty um, and lack of access to resources, these are the same people who will be hit uh, the hardest uh, and and worst and longest uh, when, when we talk about climate change. And so, I think it's important that. That we understand that there is this connection between our institutions, um, religious institutions, and what uh, they can do and what role they can play uh, when it comes to uh, educating people, uh, providing uh, venues for meetings, for community meetings. And that, that happened in Louisiana a whole lot. A lot of the meeting places uh, along the river, Mississippi River in Cancer Alley, uh, meetings, a lot of meetings were held in the churches. And uh, mm-hmm. Baptist churches and some of the Catholic churches, because you're dealing with Louisiana, with a lot of Catholic churches. So I, I think the the church has a major role to play when it comes to uh, these issues here in the U.S. as well as around the world. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, Dr. Bullard, we have listeners from across the world, um, and but most of our listeners are here in the U.S. Many of them are middle class white people, mm-hmm. and they care about this issue. I mean, they're not elitist or racist. Mm-hmm. They don't pretend to know what it's like to be subjected to the kind of environmental injustices that you've studied, but mm-hmm. they want to help in a meaningful way. Um, what can people like that do to get involved? Well, you know, you know, I give a lot of lectures on college campuses, and a lot of them are, are campuses where there's, you know, where white, white privilege is just, you know, dripping. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's important to understand that that we have one planet, and in this country, in the U.S., uh, there are issues that cut across uh, uh, race and class and geography. And I think many organizations that are out there, uh, there, there are opportunities to partner. And there are opportunities to build uh, alliances and coalitions that that to work on all kinds of issues, whether it's dealing with food deserts, or whether it's dealing with access to green space and parks, or whether it's dealing with uh, trying to ensure that that uh, uh, an area uh, uh, that's that's uh, vulnerable to hurricanes and floods and droughts, that if there is a disaster, that 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 the plans that are put in place. We'll make sure that the plans are protective of all of the populations. And, and I think we learn in, uh, or we may not have learned very well, that after Hurricane Katrina, that when we place the most vulnerable at risk uh, and don't protect the most vulnerable, we place everybody at risk, whether it's shoring up the levees, 
when the levies were not, you know, given the same, you know, amount of of resources and the main amount of shoring up and 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 retrofits, you know, for the Lord Knife Ward, it it basically placed 80% of New Orleans at at risk and it flooded. So I think the the fact that our org, many organizations can do a lot of things and and where that expertise and resources can be shared and where there there are opportunities to to form, you know, relationships and partnerships and to get to know, you know, the organization across town and have meetings. I think we are we are better off. It's been my experience that we, the environmental movement uh, has been uh the strongest when when we've had collective action across the board. Mm-hmm. And I think if we are truly uh trying to develop and want to develop a, a global movement for uh environmental uh and sustainability and deal with the issue of climate change, that means that we have to work on a lot of things together and not just work in our own little silos. We have to, you know, go across town and go, and go to places where we are not that familiar with and have meetings in places uh, that, that may be a bit outside of our comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you something else. If you could sit down with the editors of all the leading news outlets in the U.S., uh, CNN and all the print media and whoever else, mm-hmm. um, and they said, Dr. Bullard, we'll grant you three wishes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do three things that will help advance the cause of environmental justice. What three things would you ask them to do? Well, I would think uh, number one would be there has to be uh, more coverage of uh, of more coverage and more in-depth coverage of environmental justice issues that's happening uh, in the U.S. and how the, how they connect with uh, global issues. The other thing I think I would ask is that uh, these these uh, uh, outlets need to uh, have a better understanding of of environmental issues and how they uh, may not uh, necessarily be um, affecting everybody the same. Mm. Um, because I've seen a lot of coverage, and when they deal with the issue, uh, they'll see that there's a, there's a train, uh, uh, oil train spill in Aliceville, Alabama, and they go in and they do the story, and they never mention the fact that that's a... Uh, a predominantly black town, and very poor. I mean, it, it, those things get glossed over. Mm. Uh, and so I think th- that there needs to be much more sensitivity to class issues and race issues. Mm-hmm. And and lastly, I I I think you know I would uh, I would ask that we would have more um, diversity in these newsrooms that would uh, that would somehow reflect. Our society as it changes as it's changing demographically so so that uh it it won't be a shock uh when when uh when when a story is being um uh told and presented and 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 there's a discomfort in in dealing with some of these issues. Well, I think, you know, it's funny, even if we're not talking about African-American communities, even some of the poor Appalachian communities where it's predominantly white, nobody will say, you know, to cover a a mountaintop removal coal Mm -hmm. story and say these are desperately poor 
white yeah. people. You yeah. know, I mean, we don't yeah. even like to use the word poor as yeah. if it's, you know, we're giving the Chamber of Commerce version of our country as we report the news like, oh, everybody's well off and everybody's fed and everybody's fine. And and I think that, you know, dealing with issues of of poverty in the U.S. would help focus the lens across races as well and across communities if we had a softer heart for those those kinds of stories um, yes. in the first place. Yes, that, that, you're exactly right, and that's what I was saying. For example, you're right. You know, covering the story of uh, of the spill in uh, in West Virginia, West Virginia, three hundred thousand people without water. I mean, like, yes. and and these are mostly white people. Yeah. Multiple, so so I think the the that lens. Uh, sometimes uh, get some somehow you know not being used for for whatever reason uh, it's shied away from um, and the spill in North Carolina and these spills there are a lot of things going on right now for example with fracking there are a lot yeah. of people who had never thought of themselves as being on the environmental side or having an environmental conflict because they didn't live next to a refinery or or a polluting facility but now with with hydraulic fracturing the fact that the stuff is underneath their houses and underneath their neighborhood and their community now they're being drawn into an environmental issue and they're fighting Absolutely. to say you know somehow I'm being treated differently because you know we don't even own this stuff this- yeah, I'm out in the country and I'm out yes. in the rural area and I'm underrepresented in local government. Uh, you know, we we have to end here and I'm so sorry for that because I could talk to you all day long, Dr. Bullard. Thank you for joining us. I, I, I'm excited about what we talked about. I think we need to be bold and I'm so happy that you were able to share this perspective with our listeners. Folks, we're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.